Back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. In this passage, we come now to the third class and category of people who are called upon to be subordinate. The word is subject, to be subject in our translation, the ESV, but probably the word that carries a more direct translation of the original word and means exactly what I think the apostle wants it to mean is the word subordinate. It literally comes from the word hooper, or I mean a hypo, under, and the word toxis, which means a taxonomy or a order or a structure. In other words, what the apostle's talking about is an orderly structure of relationships. And he's already mentioned two. He mentioned the citizen or the subject of the government, especially the emperor and the kings and the governors. These are those that we are to be subordinate to. And he has mentioned in the economic and the, the family and home uh, environment, those of slaves being subordinate to their masters. Now, subordination does not imply inferiority. In fact, it's easy to illustrate this by just looking at the particulars. Caesar, or the emperor, is the one to whom the citizen is to be subordinate. But in what intrinsic sense is the citizen inferior to the Caesar? What innate inferiority does he have? From a human standpoint, none. For the emperor was merely a mortal man, subject to all the physical characteristics and the physical limitations and all of the emotional vicissitudes of his own character and his own personality and his own makeup. He had a certain IQ. Probably half the people in the realm had a higher IQ. He had a certain physical size. 
Probably half the men in the society was bigger than he was. And on you can go down through the fact that the emperor was intrinsically not superior in any way, but he enjoyed a status. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about the stratification of the ancient world. And there's very little exception to this. Uh, the anthropologists have studied it, and there are few, but not many exceptions to the orders of the ancient world where there were governments, citizens, subjects to the crown. There were masters and slaves. And then there was the patriarchy of the home where the father was the head of the household and he had as his subordinates his wife and his children. And this of was true in the Roman world, the Greek world. It was true in the ancient Israelite culture. You'll read all about it in the Old Testament. You'll see how it's all spelled out in the, in the, the literature and also in those societies around about the Eastern Mediterranean, which had very, very similar structures. So this was the human condition into which God by Christ became incarnate. In other words, Christ and all that has to do with Christ stepped into the human condition. So much of what we look at in these, this uh, passage in, in the New Testament is kind of a little bit out of step with some of the thinking of today, in, especially in terms of government authority, in terms of <clears throat> slave and masters, different degrees of slavery from indentured servanthood to abject slavery all the way to employment, which is a form of servitude, of course. And then what we bring up today is the first of two uh, cases of the domestic situation. So it, what was true of the emperor, he was not intrinsically superior from a human standpoint than any one of his subjects in the kingdom. In fact, he was subject to death. Read about it in Shakespeare. Et tu Brute, and you Brutus, the assassination of the Caesar. Mortal, limited. In fact, it's interesting that it was Julius Caesar who put into codification the Lex Julia, the law of Julia, which spelled out a lot of these relationships between the subject and the king, the emperor, the slave and the master, and the domestic situation with the father, the husband, wife, and children. And the same is true in the master-slave relationship that's true in the emperor-subject relationship. There's no inferiority in the slave. The slave is just as much a person, just as profoundly human and capacitated with abilities as the master. In fact, it was not uncommon in the ancient world for 
the slaves often had to be the skill positions. They were the ones that had the, the trades. They understood the smithing and the manufacturing that needed to take place. They understood the agriculture. They understood the accounting. They understood the business. They understood all of the, the various crafts as well as the, the skills that were needed for life, ordinary life. And in many cases, the slaves were the tutors of the children. They were vastly superior to their masters in intellectual capacity, quite often, and in capabilities. But in terms of taxonomy, in terms of order, they were subordinate. And just like last week, the slave is called upon to work out his position and his role with faithful service to his master. And even when it involves suffering, that all he is doing in that role is emulating the life of Christ himself as a suffering servant. Well, I think you see where I'm going. <laughs> in the husband-wife relationship, there is no inferiority in the wife. There is no superiority in the husband. This is just the order that has been assigned by, in the first case, it calls it human institutions. And in the latter case, that which God has ordained from the beginning. It occurred to me when I was thinking and working a little bit on this message this morning that this is, uh, this is a pretty hot topic. <laughs> and the whole 20th century, the Christian worldview had to fight a battle. One of the major fronts of that war was evolution versus creation. In other words, the, the believer had to believe and understand and withstand any notion other than that which was set forth in Genesis 1 where it talks about God created the heavens and the earth. So to maintain a Christian worldview and to understand it, we had to work out and think through what is evolutionary science saying? Is evolutionary science even science? What does the scripture say and how is it compatible with the reality of the cosmos around us? And that battle, of course, is ongoing. I think we're probably now well along our way into another battlefront. And it too challenges the book of Genesis, wherein God says male and female created he them. And the account of the woman's Genesis, how that a deep sleep fell upon Adam and God took from Adam a rib and fashioned to the woman and brought the woman to Adam. And Adam identified her and said, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And she was specifically designed by God to be the perfect complement, the help, meet or suitable for him. She was the creature that would be perfectly suitable. And in order to have man truly as man, human truly as human, there must be male and all that that entails and female and all that is involved there. 
That's being severely challenged in our schools and in our society and unfortunately in our courts and even in our basketball and football franchises. <laughs> the whole notion of male and female created he them. But the thing that I think helps us a little bit in this particular passage, and I've given a lot of context because I think it's important, is to note exactly the way these admonitions are worded. And in this case, in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, likewise. So the principle has been established as we've worked through civil government with the emperor and the honor and the reverence and the um, service that's due the emperor. And we've looked, worked through it with respect to slaves and masters. So we're not dealing with a different kind of case here. We're dealing with the same kind of subordination in terms of order. Likewise, wives. The address here is vocative. He's speaking directly to the wives as he will uh, in the later verse we'll get to next week, speaking directly to the husbands. And always remember that he's not talking to women and men generally. He's talking to wives and husbands. What he is about to say does not talk about women's role in society being subjected to a man's role or the female in society in subjection to the male in society, but rather directly and specifically he's talking about a man as a husband, a woman as a wife and their relationship together. A woman in society has no obligation to submit to another man in society lest and except that be her husband. And so the language is very clear. He says, wives be subject to your own husbands. There's where the admonition is. Some feminist interpretation that I've read lately just goes off so quickly before they ever really admit that point. This is not men and women, this is husbands and wives. And to make it kind of uh, pointed, he uses the same language here that Paul uses in his epistles. He says, to your own husbands. No question about it. It's not just to be subject to men in your life, but no, it is to be subject to your own. And the word for own there means particular and peculiar. It's literally the word idios. It's where we, it's where we get our word idiot. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's a wife in here that would think of this as wives be subject to your own idiot husband. But if they wanted to read it that way, we might, we might not blame them. <laughs> as I look out over this little flock this morning, I see a lot of married, happily married, long married couples. And you're coming up on 46 years of wedded bliss. And uh, this particular passage was always strongly bored into my soul by my own mother, who was a strong personality and very, very capable across a, long, a large spectrum of things. She was a very good business person. She was a nurturer. She was a leader. Uh, she was good with every single age group. You can imagine the best people person I've ever known. 
And she and dad, uh, she died Thanksgiving, this past Thanksgiving uh, week before. And uh, this past month, January 31st, three weeks ago, if she had lived till, till then, mom and dad would have celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary. We, we had an outdoor barbecue at 50 and had about 200 people there and it was a great time. And then time goes along and they have a time for a 60th wedding anniversary. So my brother and I got together and we had a thing at the church where we, a little more formal, a little smaller, but we had a money tree and we had all kinds of fun things and a lot of people uh, were there. And when it came time to say a few words, I remember my brother stood up and said, he was holding up his drink, which is in a church night. It was a, it was a good uh, non-alcoholic beverage, but he was holding up his punch and saying, if we would have known that they were going to make it to 60, we would not have had that big blowout at 50. <laughs> we would have saved our money. <laughs> well, sadly for him, he didn't live to see their 70th, which was smaller still. We booked a little place in the Hilton and had a little afternoon gathering and they brought in food and it was virtually the family extended family only, a 70th wedding anniversary. The next three wedding anniversaries they had were in the nursing home together before mother passed away. But I say all that to say this. There was no reason under the sun for my mother to be married to my dad in the, in the circumstance that they were so incompatible in so many ways right on up until just a few weeks before she died, mother was calling me and telling me how she just needs a divorce from dad, which she'd been telling me for about 25 years. And they were incompatible. If any marriage counselor would have worked with them, they would have recommended a good, amicable, peaceful, God-honoring divorce. But no. Here's what my mother did, and I watched her do it from my, from my, when I was a little child, I remember her being so upset, crying and so upset with some of the stupid things that my dad was doing by way of career and things like that, money decisions. And I remember mother just being in despair because she really was much more practical and much wiser and much, you know, she, could, she knew business and she knew life and my dad was just completely lived in his own world and uh, did his own thing and just uh, sort of followed his own drummer, as they say. And mother would be so frustrated with that. But she would say, my calling is to be submissive. And she did. Every step of the way, she worked it out. He loved her. She was six years younger. And he loved her just unbelievably dearly and precious. But when it came time, it was an act of sheer determinative will power on the part of mom to stay in that relationship and make it work and submit to dad's poor decision, to dad's misuse of money, to dad's bad idea of where we needed to live and just on and on and on I can go. She stayed with it. And the passage she would always quote, <laughs> and I, it was years later before I found it where it was, but she would say, 
what this text here says. Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <laughs> you know where that comes from. That's out of that passage in, in, the old, in Genesis where the story is that Abraham and Sarah are both learning that they're going to have a child when they're past childbearing age. And she is taking care of Abraham, serving him. Uh, he's already made a couple of severe blunders in his life. I don't have time to list them, but Abraham made tremendous disobedience sins in his life. Abraham's not the father of the faithful because he was sinless. He was the father of the faithful because he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was saved by forensic justification. The righteousness of another was imputed to Abraham. Abraham didn't have an intrinsic righteousness at all. But even in this circumstance, you see Sarah serving Abraham, waiting on him. And even when she was having a difficult time getting on the same page emotionally with him, she called him Lord. She recognized that order that was hers. And she is pointed out in this passage as the holy women who hoped in God. Can we find a better role model for a wife anywhere than a holy woman who hopes in God? And of course, this is the story of the great matriarchs of faith, Sarah, Rebecca. Um, even Rachel and Leah, if you study their lives and if you read some of the apocryphal literature like Jubilees and Wisdom, some of the books, and it'll talk about the life of Leah who bore Jacob six of his 12 sons, but was always that wife that never was really, really preferred. Rachel was the love of Jacob's life, you remember. But Rachel died. And when Rachel died, the apocryphal literature tells us that Jacob loved Leah and cherished her and honored her and extolled her virtues to the whole clan about a, what a wonderful wife she had been. And all Leah had done, what had suffered in that relationship, but she had faithfully and quietly and lovingly and doggedly determined to serve and to be the kind of help mate for Jacob that God had called her to be. And it was Leah's sons who took the leadership in Israel. It was Judah and Levi. It was those men that God placed forward in the covenant family to be the blessing down through the generations. What the apostle does here is he critiques that which is obvious. And that is that which is external. The braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of clothing, and talks about how much better it is to look at those hidden 
virtues, respectful, pure conduct, gentle, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In this instance, it is the heart that is right with God, the heart that is well informed and well regulated and in tune with God's purposes in creation and God's purposes in grace. In fact, in the next passage, which we'll look at next week, he speaks of the wife with the husbands as being heirs with you, joint heirs, co-heirs of eternal life. And this is what uh, this is what being the wife is to a husband. You're doing it just like the master, just like the slave does for the master, just like the subject does for the, for the emperor. You're doing it as unto the Lord. You're doing it because that's your calling. And not only are you to take care of those things and to, and to take care of him, but you are to understand that you're being watched. And you're being watched by no one other than God in God's sight. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, not by the outward adornment, but by the inner adornment, by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And I'll tell you what you're doing. If you, if you go through the virtues that... that uh, uh, Aristotle and some of the others in the early Greek years of the philosophical ethics that they developed, there's a, a number of virtues that are incumbent upon wives to have. Gentleness which is, and meekness, which is not weakness, but it is a controlled obedience that is both self-controlled as well as it is required by what the household demands, the raising of children, the taking care of the, of the home and the hearth and all, everything that goes with that. It is according to the book of Proverbs as it's expanded and thought of in Israelite thought. She goes beyond the gates and works in what we would call public work and she brings honor to her husband and she extols her husband. She says in her heart, he must increase but I must decrease. And if you'll study through all those virtues, you'll find out that they're what's required of every Christian, male or female, bond or slave, rich or poor, Greek or Jew. Here's what the wife's doing. She's modeling out the supreme Christian character of the members of the bride of Christ. We all, male and female, husband, wife, married, unmarried, boy, girl, young or old, are to have these qualities of life so that we may win others, so that we may bring glory to our bridegroom. And that's really what we're doing is we want to bring glory to Christ. And the picture of Christ 
and his church is that model and the husband and the wife is that type. Well, that's enough. <laughs>